So when you see Jimmy Darts in, this, in these videos and, and everyone's response to getting this you know, gift of $500 or $1,000, they're like, no, like, are, are you serious, bro? Are you dead serious? Like, all, like when we actually grasp the gospel, like the gravity of it, the beauty of it, the most natural conclusion we can have is it's too good to be true. Like, like no way. I, I, I can't accept that. I, I, is this a joke? You can't be serious right now. All I need to do to be saved is just believe in Jesus. Like, I don't have to do all this religious stuff with all my brokenness and with all my baggage. The God of the universe wants me and his family forever. I can't lose my faith. You'll hold me forever. I'm gonna spend billions of years in eternity based off what someone else did for me. That's too good to be true. See, on one hand this morning, my prayer is for those of us who know Jesus and have grown apathetic and casual towards the craziness of the gospel, my prayer this morning is that you would feel like it reawakens. Just this, cra- like to the, if you don't see the gospel as this crazy, no way, I can't believe it, is this a joke? Like this seems too good to be true. If you don't, that you would see it this morning in a new light. My, also, my other prayer or uh, idea is that on the other hand, I wanna help reframe the doubt that we all struggle with. The like very subtle, it's not an aggressive doubt that believes Jesus isn't real or the Bible isn't true or Jesus didn't resurrect, but doubts based on the goodness of God directed towards the badness of us. Like how many of us after years of walking with Jesus still struggle to believe the gospel is as good as God says it is? How many of us, after years of walking with Jesus, still struggle uh, to believe that God actually loves us despite anything we good we do or anything bad we do, that he just unconditionally loves us, that his grace won't run out, that he still wants us? I'm talking about a daily, subtle, too-good-to-be-true kind of doubt that affects all of us. And my friends in the room who haven't accepted Jesus yet, and you're here to celebrate someone getting baptized, you're just curious, um, maybe the reason you haven't given your life over to Jesus yet is because you actually think it really is too good to be true. It's so free. It's so scandalous. There's no strings attached. There's no way this news of what Jesus did could actually be true. And I want to tell you that it is. And so I want to help engage this idea uh, and answer two questions. Um, Number one, why does the gospel seem too good to be true? And number two, what does Jesus do with our doubts, our wrestling with that reality? So here's kind of the paradox of the gospel, is that the fact that the gospel seems too good to be true makes it the gospel. The fact that it's better than any other news and so difficult for us to internalize all the beauty of it makes it the actual, true, beautiful, scandalous gospel. And so this is a little bit of a different sermon because we're spending the first half just kind of exegeting or understanding or expanding this phrase in verse 41, they disbelieved for joy. They thought it was too good to be true. So we're gonna look at three reasons why I think that they thought it was too good to be true and that we can too. And then we'll answer, we'll we'll spend the back half actually kind of walking a little more through the rest of the text and answer the question, what does Jesus do with our doubts then? So uh, first thing, first reason that they thought the gospel seemed too good to be true and we do too is because it's just too simple. The gospel is just, it's too simple. So remember, Jesus' disciples uh, are, are, are Jewish people, right? And so they know all the complexities of sacrificing, and they know the hundreds of different uh, mosaic laws, and they know the temple and all the structure for this, and the sacrifices, and they know the priests and what can do this. And they're going, if Jesus is really who he says he is, all those sacrifices are done. 
And there was just one final sufficient sacrifice in Jesus. If Jesus really is who he says he is, all these other priests are not our connection to God anymore. Jesus is our connection. He's our mediator. If Jesus is real, we don't need the temple anymore. The spirit comes and indwells in us the presence of God. Like it's so simple. If Jesus is who he says he is, he takes out all the complexities of all our labor and all our work and all our religion and he singles it down to simple faith in who he is. I think the first reason they struggle with believing this is that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead and the gospel is as good as it is, is because it's just too simple. So picture this, um, you find out you have brain cancer and for five years after your diagnosis, you do everything in your power to get rid of the cancer. You go to brain uh, cancer specialists uh, throughout the world. There's one in San Francisco, there's another in Hong Kong and you go to another one in Dubai. They've done surgery, they do their best. You have suffered through radiation and chemo over and over and the cancer is still there, it's still growing. And so you try a more radical route because that didn't work. And so you find the most cutting edge, untested cancer options around, but they're risky, it's your only option. Unfortunately those don't work either. Um, you still got it. Nothing, nothing's been helping. So you're like, hey, maybe church, maybe religion, maybe prayer. So then you go to uh, churches and you start asking for prayer and people are praying for you and you're thinking maybe this is going to be it. Then you post it on uh, social media and your story goes viral and millions are praying for you and sending good vibes and you got to go fund me and everyone's excited. And you're thinking maybe after the prayer and all this stuff, maybe it's gone. You get tested. It's still there. Actually, it's even worse. There's nothing you can do about it. You're just, you're going to die. It's, it's, it's terminal. That's the reality. And so in that kind of depression, bummer, I can't believe we did everything we could. You're sitting in Starbucks and you're in the drive through line and you see a homeless guy with a cardboard uh, sign that says, I know how to cure cancer. And you just think to yourself, how ridiculous that he would make such an audacious, foolish claim to such a serious thing. But as you're looking over at him, you guys lock eyes, you know, that moment. And then he starts walking over at you and you're like this. And then he's standing by your door and you're like, uh, and so you roll it down, you just crack it. And you just say, hey, I'm not interested. And he goes, just blink your eyes twice. Just blink your eyes twice. Are you kidding me? Do you know the hundreds of thousands of dollars I've spent on the best cancer specialists in the world? Do you know the hospitals I've traveled to? Do you know the millions of people who've prayed and given? Just blink my eyes. Are you kidding me? No way. And he walks away and you think, you know what? I guess since I've tried everything, why not do this? And so you blink your eyes twice really quick. And at the moment you do the second blink, the, the lingering headache that you've had for years starts to vaporize. It's just gone. And you feel like, yourself again and your heart's racing you're trying to say no 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 that wasn't real that wasn't real that wasn't real but you're just thinking oh, I don't know you go to the hospital you get a CT scan you're waiting just like every other moment where you've had bad news you're sitting in the office alone and you hear shouting and screaming and clamor and they burst through the door and the doctor says it's a miracle your cancer is gone and you guys celebrate and rejoice and clap and you're crying and everyone's excited and, it, and as it fades down he goes they're all waiting what worked was it the one in Korea that they haven't tested yet? What was the, what was the solution? I, I just blinked twice. Like this, this encapsulates what Jesus is claiming to salvation by faith alone through grace alone. That, that's what it means. The simplicity of Jesus saving sinners is borderline lunacy. It's insanity. It sounds like heresy. How could you ever apply such a simple solution to such a grand, mountainous, unsolvable problem? Just faith in Jesus, the one guy, not the soul? Nope, just, just faith in him. Now, of course, 
our, the gospel was simple for us to receive, but it was excruciatingly difficult for Jesus to purchase, right? But it's simple for us. Remember back in Luke 18, when Jesus told the parable, the story of the tax, or the, the Pharisee, the, you know, moral, uh, great uh, tax, or Pharisee, and then, he, and then the rebellious, uh, kind of messed up tax collector, they both go to pray, and the, and the Pharisee goes, lists out his robust, righteous resume, and all that he's done, and all he doesn't do, and then the tax collector's over there, and he just beats his chest, he won't even look up, and he just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus goes, that guy, the guy that just beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful, yeah, that guy's getting saved. Wait, wait, hold on. He didn't do anything, though. Like, like he, he, he doesn't mention what church he became a member at or what Bible verses he memorized or how much he gave away or, or whatever. It's just that he just said that, that he was a sinner and God could save him. What? That doesn't make any sense. It's too simple. That prayer is too simple. Or just a couple weeks ago, Luke 23, when Jesus on the cross with the two criminals and the one criminal looks at Jesus and goes, hey, remember me when you get into your kingdom. Jesus goes, hey, you'll be with me in paradise today. Hold on. He never got to prove himself. He never got to do anything radical for God. Exactly, faith alone. Salvation is simple, and I'm telling you, it's simplicity is what makes it so difficult. We beg for a checklist. We yearn to just have something, something that we could do to prove that we're actually saved, that we were in it too. Just even a sliver of a percent, something tangible to grab onto and say, I did this and I know that I'm saved. I know I've been in that too, but God refuses to give us anything because uh, anything less than faith would rob the gospel of its glory. It, it would rob the cross of its scandal and it would rob Jesus of his victorious um, finished work. And if there were anything, if it were any less simple than it is, it wouldn't be good news. Here's what Ephesians 2 says, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. First reason we think the gospel is too good to be true. The reason they disbelieve for joy is it is just too simple. Second reason is that I'm too unworthy. I'm too unworthy. And so it's one thing to wrestle with the too good to be true simplicity of the gospel. Just faith alone, simple as blinking twice. But it's another thing to consider that simple saving faith is allocated to sinners like you and I. Okay, so um, think about these disciples. They, if you haven't been tracking with us so far, just to recap Luke 24 so far, these disciples are hiding right now. They're fearing what happened to Jesus could happen to them. They're guilty by association, right? Maybe they might get crucified too. And in the moment when Jesus needed the most, in that moment, he, they fled. They failed him. They forgot what he had said. So why are they disbelieving for joy? Why is it so hard for them to fathom that right now, Jesus is actually in front of them, resurrected from the dead? Because if he were to show up to anyone in the world, it shouldn't be them. It shouldn't be them. Think about this. After all he invested to them, they completely blew it. They completely abandon him at the pinnacle moment where he needed. They scatter in fear, and they're still hiding, and they're still debating, and they're still disbelieving after all he's done. That's a prime reason for Jesus to give up on them and go find more worthy recipients. Or if he were to show up, we'd assume him to show up and... Uh, explain his disappointment or to be angry at them or to scold them, right? But not to bring peace. He comes and goes, peace to you. This is crazy. What's Jesus doing? He's finding them in their unworthiness, fresh off their failure, and they're all having a hard time believing that this is actually real, that God would choose such unworthy people. And friends, we do 
the same thing. Uh, the most prestigious civilian medal in the United States is called the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, it's given uh, to a select few people who have made, in quotes, an especially meritorious contribution to security or national interests interest of the United States, world peace, cultural, or other significant public or private endeavors. So this is, um, uh, you know, some amazing people have received it. But I recently found out that when the president is placing on the Presidential Medal of Freedom on you, on your neck, that someone else is in the room reading a list of the things you've accomplished. So while he's doing this, another person is reading the list of all the things you've accomplished. So Bill and Melinda Gates got this medal. And uh, while they were being uh, given this medal, another person in the room was reading off the $36 billion they gave away to help relieve world hunger, to help uh, care for people who were impoverished, to help uh, fight sickness among the world and all this stuff. And, and it's amazing, right? It's so special. So friends, I want you to p- picture the moment that you stand before the holy God of the universe at the end of your earthly life. His majesty is shocking. You're sitting before him, no doubt you're on your knees, your face is to the ground, you're wrestling with his majesty, his glory, his bigness, and your frailty, your sinfulness, your brokenness, you just can't even handle it. It's, it's honestly, a, it's gotta be a frightening moment to be before his throne. And then an angel in the room grabs a scroll and reads out loud what you've done with your life. But instead of reading the things that you've done, the angel reads absolutely spotless, unparalleled righteousness, completely pure, infinitely loving, uh, just uh, perfectly submitted to the Father, rejecting evil always. And you're there and your face is to the ground and you're quivering and you lift up your eyes in shock and the God of the universe is smiling at you with pride beaming in his heart over you. And he shouts all through heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. And all of heaven rejoices, the angels and everyone, that you get to come into the kingdom of God. It seems like all your rebellion and all your attempted righteousness is just forgotten. And all that mattered was that Jesus' resume was read over you. How humbling is that? How hard is it to internalize that that's gonna be our story? It seems too good to be true, right? There's no way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or in other words, God made Jesus the only worthy person, unworthy with our sin so that unworthy sinners could be treated like a worthy saint. That's the too good to be true gospel. It's too simple. I'm too unworthy And the last reason I think they struggle with this, they disbelieve for joy, is because it's too inexhaustible. The gospel is too inexhaustible. It's too limitless. It's too endless. It's too infinite. There's gotta be something to it. So in verse 41, when Luke says they were disbelieving for joy and marveling, it's actually the exact same word that described Peter's response to seeing the empty tomb. So look up at uh, verse 12 in chapter 24. Verse 12, here's what it says. That... um, that Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So that word marveling, same word that's used in verse 41, and what it's picturing is this imagery or this analogy of shock, amazement, joy, like the Jimmy Darts video, um, but still not belief. It's crazy, it's shocking, but it's still not belief yet. And, and so you have to ask the question, well, what was the last interaction Peter and Jesus had? 
Well, it was back a couple pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 22, where Peter denies Jesus three different times. And at the third denial, they both lock eyes. He looks over and he sees Jesus, right? And he weeps bitterly and he's convicted of his sin and he runs away, okay? And so this moment, they're standing face to face. They're standing face to face. And Peter's gotta be wondering, I know Jesus is forgiving. I spent three years with Jesus. I know he's forgiven. He's forgiven me. But the question has to linger in Peter's heart. How forgiving is he? Right? Like how, how, what's the extent of his forgiveness? Have I messed up too bad with denial? Have I overextended his forgiveness? Has he run out of grace? Has the sea of his mercy dried up? Have I lost the love of Jesus because of my failure? And friends, we ask those same questions too, don't we? Like those just linger in our heads always. Um, I know I'm saved by grace, but what do I have to do to keep it, right? Is there anything I could do to lose the love of God? There's gotta be a limit to his love, an exhaustion to his grace, a finite cap to his forgiveness, a point of exhaustion. The claim that our salvation is completely finished and inexhaustible makes it hard to believe and too good to be true, right? Um, It's gotta run out. Now, for, for us thinking in the room, what's the most like expansive, infinite thing you can think of here on earth? Probably the ocean, right? Like that's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. So I looked up some research on the ocean. There's 352 quintillion gallons of water in the ocean, okay? I don't even exactly know how to explain quintillion. It's just 18 zeros, okay? So 352, 18 zeros, right? The deepest part of the ocean is at least... 35,000 feet deep. That's six and a half miles straight down. And so in 2022, with all the modern advancements we have, with all those, um, the, the sturdiest, best remotely operated vehicle we have can only go down a third of the way to explore. There's still two thirds that they, we can't even get to because of the pressure. And so only 20% of the ocean has been mapped or explored or even seen by humans. In fact, a greater percentage of Mars and the moon have been mapped than our ocean. That's how big it is, okay? Um, it seems infinite, doesn't it? But it's actually not. It's not infinite. In fact, a, a scientist named Paul Smith from Cardiff University worked the math out. So if there's about 7.7 billion people here on earth, and those 7.7 billion people drink two liters of water a day, which let's be honest, we're a little dehydrated. We need to drink a little bit more. Two liters of water a day, 7.7 billion. We will have water for 89 trillion days to drink the ocean dry, which is over 200 million years. So that's a ridiculously long time for us to drink the, water, the ocean dry, but it's got a limit, right? It will eventually run dry. And I think this is the way we view the grace of Jesus. Of course it's big. Of course it's expansive. Of course it's wild and, and, and wide and, and all this, but, but there's gotta be a limit to it, right? Like there is, has to be some sin that I could commit that wouldn't qualify under the grace of Jesus. Or there has to be some repeated sin that I keep falling into that eventually God will be tired of giving me the same forgiveness. There's got to be some pressure on me that if I don't get better, God will be done with me. It's big, but there's got to be, a, there, there, it might take 200 million years, but there's a way to run it dry. It's almost infinite. It's pretty much inexhaustible. But hanging on the cross, friends, Jesus cries out in victory. John 19:30. it is finished. The work is done. 
every drop of wrath you and I deserve for past, present, future sin has been swallowed up. The bill has been paid in full. The sin is gone. If you've trusted in Jesus, hear me say this. There isn't a shred of possibility for your sin to be counted against you. Think about that. Just sit in that for a moment. It doesn't matter how expansive your sin is. This is what Charles Spurgeon said about this. The moment a man believes in Christ, not some of his sins, but all of his sins are gone. Just as when God blew with his wind, the Egyptians were all drowned at once in the waters of the Red Sea. Moses said, you shall see them no more forever. So when we believe in Christ, the breath of God's pardoning love blows upon the waters and our sins sink to the bottom like a stone. There is not one of them left. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. You can't out the grace of God. You can't get deep enough for him not to go deeper still. This is the good news. It's completely infinite. And the too good to be true, God's gospel promises of God's grace that it won't run out. Peter wrestled with it, we, and we do too. But we get to rejoice that his grace is completely, definitively, gloriously, infinitely inexhaustible. There is no limit. You can't outspend the grace of God. And so the gospel seems too good to be true, right? It's too simple, I'm too unworthy, and it's just too inexhaustible. But the fact that the gospel seems too good to be true, like I said, ensures that, that it is the gospel, that there's no other good news like it, that there's no other promise like it. Um, and so there's a long list of reasons. I could go on. I was talking to my wife this week about all these other options and reasons, and I was like, I got to keep it. I got to keep it in, right in center, right? So I'd love to have that conversation sometime. But the next thing we can look at, we all start with this reality of not believing the beauty of the gospel always. But what does Jesus do with that doubt? What does he do with that wrestle to believe we're unconditionally loved always? Um, we, get to we get to find out. And so um, uh, I want to look now at the rest of the verses and kind of track through this story and see what he does in light of them disbelieving for joy. So uh, three things. What does Jesus do with their doubt? Look at verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, which is like Brett covered last week, Road to Emmaus, that Jesus had, you know, blown their minds with this amazing Bible study. Um, Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Jesus stood among them and said, peace to you. First thing I want us to see quickly is his relentless pursuit. Like they're hiding. He, he comes through the locked door directly, I don't know, and he says, peace to you. Peace to you. It's crazy. So let's just process Jesus' day so far. So again, uh, to give you context on what Luke 24 has been explaining so far, uh, Jesus predicted that he would die and raise again. Everybody forgot it. And so he dies on Friday, Sunday comes, everyone's mourning, everyone's hiding, everyone's afraid, everyone abandoned him, right? But the faithful women come to the tomb early with spices to help anoint his body, and, um, and the tomb's rolled away, and the tomb is empty, or the stone's rolled away, the tomb's empty, and they're freaking out like, oh my gosh. And then the angel's like, hey, don't you remember? Don't you remember he said that he was going to do this? And they're like, oh, maybe I do remember that. And like, yeah, and the whole Old Testament promised Jesus was going to die and resurrect too. And they're like, oh, I do remember that. That sounds awesome. Cool. That sounds great. All right. And then they're like, yeah. And then so the women go and they go tell the guys, hey, guys, I know you're hiding. I don't even know what you guys are doing. But I want to tell you this. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The stone's rolled away. And they're like, nah, we're going to watch the Masters and, you know, and March Madness and just do our thing. And they're like, no, 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 it's real. And it became the pivotal moment where it's like, hey, guys, we should probably listen to the women in our life. But anyways, that happens. And, uh, and, and, and so they, they don't believe. The guys literally say it's a make-believe story. Jesus, there's no way Jesus could have rose from their grave. And then there's two disciples that are walking on this road to Emmaus. Brett covered it last week. Jesus comes alongside of them. They don't realize it's Jesus. He blows their mind with the best Bible study that ever happened. 
grabs the whole Testament, shows how it points to him. Their minds are blown. They realize it's Jesus. They freak out. They go run to their friends and tell them about the other disciples about Jesus. So the women have told uh, the men. These other two disciples have told the rest of the people, and yet they're still debating if it's true. It doesn't ever give indication that they really believed all in Jesus had resurrected. And so it's been a busy day for Jesus, right? But what I want to point out is that Jesus responds to our doubt with relentlessly pursuing us. You have to get this. Jesus refuses to give up on us. Like in the midst of our doubt and our faltering faith, he does not let us sit in it. He doesn't push us away in it. He pursues us. He went after them. They were, John says they were behind a locked door and he breaks through that. So whatever you are hiding away in, Jesus is pursuing you in that. And so friends, he won't stop until we realize how good the gospel really is. And so listen, if, if, if you're like me and you daily struggle to believe that you are unconditionally loved. He will not stop proving that he loves you. If you're anything like me and you struggle daily to think that just you feel like God's just distant, he won't stop showing you how near he is. If you're anything like me, for those of us who believe that God's given up for us on us because of the thing that we did, we promise you'd never do again, he won't stop proving to you that he'll hold you fast. How does Jesus respond to our doubt? By relentlessly pursuing us. Second thing, look at that. We'll finish the rest of the verses, so 37 through uh, 43. But when they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It's I myself, touch me and see. For your spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave it to him, uh, a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate them before that. Not only do we see um, Jesus relentlessly pursues in their persistent doubt, but, but we get to see his gracious posture in this. Like, and that's the question that I, I'm wrestling. I'm like, I know he's pursuing. I know he went through the, the door, but what's the tone of his voice? Like, what's his feeling and, and his posture towards these disciples? How's he actually responding to their doubt? Now, um, can you think of a time that you've been doubted before? Like did someone's questioned you before or, or, or um, maybe it's your integrity or your loyalty or your faithfulness. It could be in a relationship, could be at a job, could be in a sport, whatever. Um, but if you had a time where someone's doubted you before, how, how did you respond to being doubted? How did you respond to being questioned? Where you're like, that's awesome. Thanks so much for thinking that, you know? No, there's a couple options. Number one, I think we just get frustrated. Like when I'm doubted, I'm just like mad, like why would you ever think that? Like, I can't, you know, just get angry. Uh, two, I think we can get just confused, like just perplexed at why you would ever think that I would compromise on this. Like, what, what have I done to, to make you think that I, I would do that? Number three, I think we just get defensive, like, like, like argumentative to try to prove them wrong and prove us right. And number four, I think it's really easy to just get worn out in the light of doubt. Like, I'm done with you questioning me. And I, and I don't need to prove myself to you. And so I'm done. That's how we normally respond to doubt, right? But not Jesus. What's he do in the midst of perpetual doubt all day long? They forget him. They deny him. They deny the women. The other guys come. They're still debating it. And what does Jesus do? He comes in, says peace to you, and goes, can we eat together? Listen, um, they initially thought that Jesus was a ghost, right? It's part of the story. And so he goes, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not... Um, 
And so he takes this, this, uh, this fish, he goes, hey, can I have anything to eat? They give him fish, and he eats it. So on one hand, the fish was to prove that Jesus was an actual, like he was a real bodily uh, resurrection. Like, I can eat. Okay, awesome. That sounds great. I hope you enjoy your filet of fish. But um, secondarily, it wasn't just to prove that he was a human. It was to show his intimacy. See, it's not really significant to us in America in 2022, but back then in Jewish culture, eating with somebody was so significant. It communicated intimacy and, and friendship and, and connection. You don't eat a meal with someone you hate. You scowl at them from across the room. You know, you, you talk about them behind their back. I don't know, you freeze to shake their hand or look them in the eyes. You might sit at a conference table with someone you tolerate, but you sit at a table and eat with someone you love. And so when Jesus goes, hey, can I, is there anything to eat? They would know automatically he wants to sit at the table with us. This is Jesus. He wants to be with us again. It's beautiful. And so in verse uh, 38, when Jesus says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? It would be wrong for us to picture him saying that argumentatively or in a frustrated tone or in like this, there's this, there's this gentleness about it. It's, it's not angry. It's not defensive. It's an invitation to say, I really am who, you, who I am. Like I really am the great I am. I really am God um, resurrected. And so when we doubt, I want you to know he doesn't shy away from us in frustration or confusion. He doesn't angrily defend himself. He's not worn out and ready to walk away. He's patient with us and he's gracious. As my friend Bob Wall says, God's chest is big enough for you to beat on. He's not fragile. He's not gonna trigger right away. You can doubt him and he'll just keep having gracious posture towards you. And the last thing I wanna point out is not just his relentless pursuit or his gracious posture, but his costly payment. So look again at verse 39. Uh, 39, see my hands and my feet. Jesus says, it's I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So it says that they originally think Jesus is a ghost, right? And in his effort to assure them that he's actually real, that it's actually him, he says, hey, touch my hands, touch my feet. So clearly they can see that he's not a ghost. They could feel the warm of his skin. They could feel the bone underneath, right? And they go, oh, this is not a ghost. It's not Casper. That, you know, like this is actually Jesus physical that I can hold on to. But couldn't he have said, feel my face or touch my knees or uh, look into my eyes? Like, why did he say, touch my hands and my feet? Well, because his hands and his feet were pierced so that he could be hung on a cross, See, this wasn't, in one hand, this absolutely was to reveal his personhood, that he's actually real and he's a man and it's his body, but it's also revealing his payment for them, how much it cost for him to save them. But it also raises the question, well, why didn't Jesus have his hands and his, his feet healed, right? Like those who are, have disabilities here on earth in heaven be fully glorified. If those in wheelchairs would be able to run around a softball track, what, I mean, it's going to be beautiful. Jesus could have, so why did he choose to keep his hands and his feet wounded? David Guzik is a commentarian, and he, here's what he says. He says, a couple options, to be his ornaments. Why did he keep his hands and his feet scarred? To be his ornaments, trophies of his great work for us, to memorialize his weapons with which he defeated death to preserve the evidence of humanity's crime against him, to serve as advocates in his perpetual intercession for us. If you've ever seen a wounded veteran, if you've ever seen a wounded veteran, it serves as an unavoidable reminder of what they paid for us, what they did for us, what they had to pay for our freedom. 
And from that room with Jesus and his disciples to billions of years later in eternity, Jesus wears his war scars for us so that we can't forget what he did for us and what he paid. As the disbelieving disciples wrestle with the too good to be true gospel, Jesus shows them his hands and his feet to remind them what he paid for them. Listen, friends, the gospel does seem too good to be true. It seems too simple, but if it were any more complicated than faith alone, we couldn't be saved. The gospel seems too good to be true. We're we're too unworthy. But if God only saved those who are worthy, heaven would be empty. Only God and angels alone. Yes, the gospel seems too inexhaustible, but if it were limited, we would out-sin grace and be unsaved. The gospel has to be too good to be true because it's the only way we're saved. And it is true, and it's glorious. And so my invitation for us this morning is to remember the beauty of it. To, to, to revel in, in, in the glory and, 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 and sit in that paradox of going, no way, you can't be serious. And then also, okay, I'll receive it, I'll take it. And so, yeah, let's pray to that.